Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Good morning, New Covenant. Hey, good morning. I am clearly not Dave DeShop. Uh, I have much more hair than he does. <laughs> He knows it too. Uh, My name is Austin Drake. I am, uh, as Brian introduced me, one of the pastoral interns here at New Covenant Church. Oh, thank you. Thank you. A little bit about me. I'm currently going through seminary right now. I'm finishing up my last semester. Uh, I have about seven months to go and uh, then I'll graduate and I will be done and I can sleep and my wife will be happy to spend more time with me because my nose isn't buried in a book uh, and it's going to be great. Um, another part about me, I have been married to my wife Sarah who is over there, I see her, uh, for almost three years now. Our anniversary is coming up in November and so that will be our three year anniversary. Oh, thank you, thank you. <clears throat> And we also have a little corgi that is essentially our son. Uh, And we love him to pieces, and he's pampered far too much. Uh, Well, I'm happy to be with you guys this morning. Uh, We're going to be jumping into Romans 5, 1 through 11, so we're going to take a little bit of a break from Revelation. You guys can take a breath, decompress, enjoy your time. Just kidding. You enjoy your time here all the time, right? (laughs) Some of you do. I'm just kidding. But before we get into our time together today, uh, I wanted to go through a few definitions uh, for our text because we're going to be dealing with some words and it's good that we're on the same uh, wavelength as we get into this. Um, So the first word that we're going to be dealing with, you'll see it in the text and I'll talk about it uh, as well as justification. And this is a legal term uh, in scripture and it's designated for um, the one who's been acquitted of a crime. But the Westminster Confession uh, has a theological definition, which we're going to work off of, and it is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And that's essentially uh, imputed as a fancy way of saying given. And justification is received by faith alone. So that's our first definition, justification. Our second one is going to be grace. And we're going to be looking at this in a little bit more of a nuanced way than maybe what you've looked at it before as uh, not only God's undeserved gift, but we're going to look at it in this context as well. And this definition is given to us from Douglas Moo, who is a New Testament scholar. And he says, grace describes the free, unconstrained manner in which God acts towards his creatures. So that's grace. And then third and last is peace. And this is where we probably have the biggest separation uh, of of seeing two different cultures come at work. Peace we see as uh, all things around us being peaceful, and we ourselves are peaceful. But peace in a biblical context, again, drawing on Douglas Moo, is the well-being, prosperity, or salvation of the godly person. And this meaning of peace is more akin to the Hebrew term shalom which is more well-being. It's inner and outer well-being. So, with that, 
Would you all stand with me, if you're able, and we will read Romans 5, 1 through 11. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Thanks, you may be seated. <clears throat> so there was a, a school system in a large city that had a, a program to help children who uh, would be hospitalized, and it was to help them keep up with their schoolwork during stays in the hospitals. And one day, a teacher who was assigned to the program received a routine call asking her to visit a particular child. She took the child's name down and, and his room number and, and talked briefly with the child's regular class teacher. She said, we're studying nouns and adverbs in his class, and I'd be grateful if you could help him understand them so he doesn't fall too far behind. The hospital program teacher went to see the boy that afternoon, but no one had mentioned to her that the boy had been badly burned and was in a, a great deal of pain. Upset at the sight of the boy, she stammered as she told him, I've been sent by, uh, by your school to help with nouns and adverbs. And so she did, uh, but she, when she left, she felt that she hadn't accomplished much. But the next day, a nurse asked her, what did you do to that boy? And the teacher felt she must have done something wrong, so she began to profusely apologize. And, and she, the nurse says, no, 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 you, you don't understand. We've been worried about that little boy. But ever since yesterday, his whole attitude has changed. He's fighting back, responding to treatment. It's as though he's decided to live. Two weeks later, the boy explained that he had completely given up hope until the teacher arrived. Everything changed when he came to a simple realization, and, and he expresses it this way. He says, they wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? And so like this boy, uh, life can feel kind of like we're in the middle of a battle that we are trying to recover from, um, and we can't really see a way out. But Christ did not die to rescue people who are still destined for ultimate death. Christ did not give what we're going to talk about, these good gifts for people who are still just going to die. He gave them to people whom he has given life. And so, as we get into our text today, we got to do a little bit of groundwork in that we need to work through, uh, I, yeah, I call it a flyover of Romans 1 through 4, and that we're just going to take a 30,000-foot view of it, 
couple minutes, and then we'll move on to our text. Uh, but in Romans 1 through 3, Paul gives a long discourse on sin and people trying to attain righteousness. And in Romans 2, he talks about how the Jewish people try to attain righteousness through the law, but they can't because they can't work for it. Uh, so they can't attain it. And then in uh, Gen- or Genesis, Romans 3, he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles not being able to attain righteousness through works, laws, sacrifices, any of these things. And so the reader is left wondering, how do I become righteous? And so at the end of Romans 3 and going into 4, Paul turns his focus and he goes back to a story that we all probably know quite well is the story of Abraham. And he describes that Abraham was declared righteous by faith. And he does this by showing that Abraham, or that we are also declared righteous by faith. And so as we look, I'm going to read Romans 4, 18 through 22, or through 25, excuse me. And that'll give us a little bit of context as we jump into our passage. And it says in verse 18, Paul says, In hope he, he being Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And, And just really notice this verse, verse 21 fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so Abraham believed that God was able to do what he said he was going to do, and that is how Abraham is justified. The story is still true for us today. Abraham looked forward to what God was going to do. We look back and believe in what God did. And we say, God is who he says he is. He did what he said he was going to do. And so this kind of lays the groundwork for the text that we're going to be going through today. And it's about boasting in the gifts that we have received from God as a result of our justification through Christ. And so our first gift that we're going to be looking at today is that we have moved uh, relationally from hostility with God to peace with God. And so the first gift that we have is peace with God. But in order to understand this peace, we must understand our previous relationship, which was hostility. Our war against God took place through sin and rebellion. And Paul reminds us of this in verses 6 through 8 and in verse 10, where he calls us weak and ungodly and sinners and enemies. And apart from Christ, that's, he's talking about us. That is hostile language. Apart from the Christ, Christ's work on the cross, we would still live in open rebellion against God. And the product of living a life of open rebellion is to endure the full wrath of God. That's why in verse 9, Paul says that we have escaped the wrath of God through Christ. Why do we need to endure this wrath? Apart from Christ, it is because God is just, and he cannot overlook sin. Christ's death on the cross is very much about the outpouring of God's wrath on Christ in our place. 
It is not simply about the overlooking of sin, but it is about the displacement of the wrath that we deserve onto Christ on our behalf so that we don't endure it. In Revelation 6, 15 through 17, John says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? There's a day coming and has come where people would rather die opposed to God than face his wrath. See the dread that they have. But the mistake they make is to think that death will be the avoidance of God's wrath. So at this point, you might be planning your escape. You're seeing the trajectory. You're like, oh, no, this guy's brimstone and fire, and he's just getting started. But there's good news. But the good news has to be in light. Or the, the, the peace we have with God has to be understood in the significance of our hostility towards God and God's righteous justice. And that's what makes the gospel so urgent. Paul in Acts 26 testifies to the gospel before the king of the Palestinian province, uh, King Agrippa was his name. And in verses 28 and 29, Agrippa says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul understood something. Paul understood peace with God, which means he also understood what unbelievers don't have. And he longs for them to have that. He longs for them to have peace with God. And Charles Spurgeon, uh, I'm, I'm a big reader. I like quotes, and so you'll hear me throw out a lot of quotes today, forgive me. Uh, most of them are dead people. Um, Charles Spurgeon says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go, go unwarned and unprayed for. The message of the gospel is peace with God, which reorients the way that we look at the rest of the world. Because if we have experienced peace with Jesus as our king, then this changes everything. We see the world as it is, and we desire to see it restored down to the last molecule. We desire to see people at peace with God. And so the question that I have is, what does this mean for you and I? And first and foremost, the justification that we have received completely transforms our relationship with God from one of hostility to one of peace. And it's because God has done that. We were the ones that were hostile, and God has moved toward us to make peace with us. But this peace must be thought of through the terms by which Paul intended it. It's not thought of as the absence of difficulty or hostility in life. But a good way to describe it is that there is peace in your soul even when hostilities rage around you. This peace with God will always lead to seeking peace in the lives of the people around you. 
So another story for you. Uh, this is about a, a gal named Fan Thee Kim. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. She is the focus of a picture that is seen as one of the indelible images from the Vietnam War. A photograph of a nine-year-old girl uh, running towards a photographer. And during a battle between the North and South Vietnamese troops, an American commander ordered South Vietnamese aircraft to drop napalm bombs on her tiny village. Two of her brothers were killed and she was burned badly. Wearing no clothes, she fled up the road towards the cameraman. Because of the pain, her arms are held out sideways and her mouth is open in a cry of agony. According to Elaine Schialino of the New York Times, Miss Kim suffered third degree burns over 50% of her body, but she lived. She endured 14 months of painful rehabilitation and scores of skin grafts. And the Times article says it was so painful to have her wounds washed and dressed that she lost consciousness whenever she was touched. Since then, she has married, immigrated to Canada, and become a Christian who hopes someday to attend Bible college. Her burned skin lost sweat and oil glands, and she still deals with extraordinary pain. Scars stretch up her arms to her chest and back. But despite her past and present suffering in 1996, she accepted an invitation from several Vietnam veteran groups to join in the Veterans Day ceremonies held at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, where she laid a wreath and spoke words of forgiveness. She said, I've suffered a lot of pain uh, from both the physical and emotional. She told the audience of several thousand people. Sometimes I couldn't breathe, but God saved my life and gave me faith and hope. Even if I could talk face to face with the pilot who dropped the bombs, I would tell him, we cannot change history, but we should try to do good things for the present and for the future to promote peace. Peace with God never remains vertical. It never remains, peace with God never remains just peace with God. It always overflows into seeking peace with other people. And when we inevitably grow tired of seeking peace because we feel like we're being walked on, taken advantage of, uh, people are berating us, here's my encouragement to you. Turn your mind once again to the great lengths God has gone to so that you can have peace with him. On to my second point. We have obtained access through Jesus' death into this grace which we stand. What Paul is talking about here is God's keeping power of us through peace. In his use of grace here, Paul has a nuanced view, like I said, in that he's thinking specifically about the way that grace transfers us from one state of a relationship into another state of a relationship, from state of the law to a state of grace. And so when he looks at me, when he looks at you, when he looks at Christians, he doesn't see all the right and wrong that I've done or that you've done. He doesn't see our rags of righteousness. Rather, what he sees is Jesus Christ. He sees the perfect fulfillment of the law that was given to us. That's imp imputation right there. And as a result, Christians aren't just saved, but are adopted as children, not enemies. And I'm also destined to receive a king's inheritance and to be seated at the king's table because I have been justified by Christ, by Christ and I stand in this grace. And in Christ, I've already received every spiritual blessing I can possibly receive. Ephesians says that we are already seated with him in the heavenly places. We are already positioned by him, and there is nothing that can be done, nothing I can say or do or that can be done to me that will remove me from being seated with him 
right now. We get to live as ones being treated as part of the king's family, not as enemies. And what Paul is trying to do here, as I said, is to contrast grace with law. In the Old Testament, Israel was under the Mosaic law, so they had to live in accordance with that law. They had to make atoning sacrifices. They had to endure punishment for the corporate sins of the nation. They went through all of those things, but in Christ, we no longer need to atone for sin because the death and resurrection of Christ has dealt with the problem of sin. And so, friends, if nothing else, this is good news because we don't have to work to be good enough anymore. We don't have to have this pull, your boot, pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality or uh, just trying to be a good enough person to make it into heaven because that has already proven not to work. You and I were dead in sin. The Greek word there is nekros. Do you know what it means? It means dead. That means that we cannot do anything that will pull us out and to attain righteousness. We are dead in sin. And so grace not only means that God has bore our burdens and set us free from the power of sin, but it also means that we've been brought to life. We've graciously been given life by God. Most importantly, Christ justifies us, grants us peace with God, and the grace in which we stand allows us access to God. The word used in this verse for stand has a connotation of being fixed. It means immovable. And this means that when you are saved, there's nothing and no one that can snatch you from this new realm in which you live. And there's nothing that can keep you from entering into his presence. And so when the author of Hebrews in, in chapter 4 verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is what he's talking about. You're able to do that because you stand in this grace. You have a different relationship. Christ has transferred you to a relationship of law, to a relationship of grace that gains you access to him. But this tends to sometimes seem like a small thing to us, to have, to have access to God. And we've become desensitized to this reality. And so I want to look at some texts to kind of wrap our minds around how magnificent God is. And so in Isaiah 6, Isaiah describes this God as the one that even the angels cannot look at because he is so holy and terrifying. They fly around him and they cover their faces with one set of wings. They cover their feet with another set of wings. And they're compelled to cry out praise to him. There is lightning. There's smoke. There is pure light emanating from him. That is God. In Zechariah, uh, Zechariah has a vision and he sees the high priest who is uh, at that time Joshua. And he sees Joshua dressed in these filthy rags. And, and what that word, they kind of gloss over that word, but what that means is that there's excrement all over him. And he's standing in the presence of God. And so this would have been the highest dishonor. Like, it, there's a reason they tied a rope around the high priest as they went into the Holy of Holies, because if they were not worthy to be there, God would strike them dead. That is who God is. And this is the same God of Revelation who sits on the throne in every nation, tribe, and tongue. The creatures and all the things that God created cry out to God saying, worthy are you. They say it to no one else. Worthy are you. And this is the same God that we see in Jesus in the Gospel of Luke where he is going into 
Jerusalem, and he has people crying out praise to him. And he has detractors saying, why are you letting them praise you? And he says, even if they're quiet, the stones will cry out. See how big God is. God is not simply your friend. He is first and foremost your king. The one who rescued you from death while you were still sinning against him. While you were still an enemy. While you were still hostile. That is who God is. And so by grace you have access to this God. And he's no longer constrained in his relationship with you. When we become desensitized to having access to this God, it's not because God is decreased or become less. Rather, it's that we've lost sight of his magnitude, his magnificence, and his supreme rule over all things seen and unseen. And so this leads me to my next point, hope in the glory of God. If this is who our God is, then surely our hope in him cannot be in vain. This is the crescendo of Paul's point. This is the climax of what he's trying to get to. And this is the point also where Paul turns towards the future. He turns towards that eternal glory that we're destined for. And so when he writes in verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He has in mind this final moment where God's judgment is complete and his people will exist in perfect peace, perfect joy, and enjoy the glory of God who has drawn us near. And so in essence, Paul is saying that we rejoice, we boast in this hope because right now isn't the best that it gets. That there's something even greater coming. But Paul also perceives a pitfall that we can also often fall into. And that is that hope is lost when we suffer. He shows us in verses 3 through 5 that suffering serves to show that hope will increase all the more even in the face of suffering, but not without difficulty. And there's a quote by uh, a Puritan theologian, his name is George Gifford, and he, he just he states this beautifully. He says, no sooner has the apostle pointed out to the, to the glory of God as a light shining afar to cheer the believer on his course than he thinks of the contrast between that bright distance and the darkness that lies around him here. So much pain and hurt and sin are around us as we navigate through this world. Physical pain and disease and crime and broken marriages and fractured families and unwanted diagnoses and the list goes on. War, famine, all of these things. And these things aren't distanced from us. We don't just see them on the news and we're unaffected by them. They're actually happening in our lives. They're happening to our families, our friends, us. And the question that Paul faced then and the question that we face today in light of a culture that is crippled by anxiety and depression and disunity is this. How can all these blessings remain in the face of such suffering? Paul takes a position that probably uh, makes us uncomfortable today because he says, boast in it. And it's not because Paul is a masochist and just loves suffering. And he's not encouraging us to be masochists that just revel in suffering for the sake of suffering. It's not what he has in mind here. We rejoice in suffering because we know that it reveals the endurance of our faith. 
It shows who our faith is in. And when we endure through suffering, our characters are fine. The Greek word there for character is actually just proving character. Suffering proves your character. And a refined character is one that continues to boast in the hope of the glory of God. Because the mature Christian realizes that in this world there will be many periods of long suffering. Because sometimes there seems like there's a lot more valleys than there are hills. It seems like there's a lot more times where I can't feel God than I do feel God. But that's not what our relationship is based on. Why? Because our confidence is in something that's already been done. Our confidence is in the cross. Our hope is in the cross. Our hope is that the cross has given us this grace. It's brought us into this relationship that is just different. And we have this eternal hope now because God is not still in the grave. Christ is not still in the grave. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, continually interceding for us is what Hebrews says. It says he lives to make intercession for us. He's acting on our behalf. That's God. That is Christ. And so when this world and our sin nature and Satan begin to throw everything that it can at us to wear us down, I pray that you'd lean into Jesus' words in John 16. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so that word and, and he uses there in John 16, verse 33, for tribulation, and then here in Romans 5 for suffering, they're the same word in the Greek. It's the same word. And G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton uh, who's an author and theologian, has this to say about hope. Hope means hoping when things are hopeless. Otherwise, it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. And so this phrase in verse 5 uh, of Romans said that hope will not put us to shame is a word that is situated in the future tense, meaning that our hope isn't in vain because it's eternal. For the Christian, things are never hopeless because we have an eternal hope and that we look forward to a day when there are no more tears, where there's no more anxiety, there's no more depression, there are physical limitations of our body are, are, are no more, and we are with God in glory. That is our hope. And we know this is true, because God has given us everything he can through the death and resurrection of his son and through Christ's sending of the Spirit. Paul calls that God pouring out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And that word pouring out <clears throat> is the same word when Dave talks about uh, the seven angels pouring out their bowls of wrath. That word has a connotation of emptying out. It's the same word that's used here. God has emptied out his love in the sending of the Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit is here to empower us to live as Christians, form us, us, form us into the image of Jesus Christ, to endow us with spiritual gifts, but he's also sent as a promise. The Spirit is a mark on his people, that we are his people, and it's also to show that the Spirit is the first of much more to come. Ephesians 1 talks about this in verses 13 and 14. Uh, he says, Paul says here, uh, 
with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we have a promise that God is going to fulfill what he said he's going to do, that last thing, that last glorification, because we have the Spirit. That's the promise that God's given us, that he's going to complete it. In Philippians, God said, what he had, or Paul says, what he has started, he will bring to completion. And he's talking about you and I. And so we go to the last point. This is amazing things. These are amazing gifts. We have peace with God, access to God, hope in the glory of God that's oriented towards the future, that this isn't going to be the best that it's going to get. But here's the thing. We don't deserve any of it. We don't deserve peace with God because all we've done in our own strength is make war with God. We don't deserve grace because we deserve the full wrath of God. We deserve to bear the weight of God's justice. We don't deserve hope in the middle of suffering. We deserve hopelessness. Apart from Christ, we are weak, ungodly, and an enemy of God. Ephesians 2 calls us, uh, children, by nature, children of wrath. We don't deserve the complete outpouring of God's love to us through the sending of his spirit. We don't deserve any of it. But the two greatest words in the Bible are but God. No. As you read through verses 6 through 11, notice that we are passive in every single one of these verses as God acts on our behalf. Charles Hodge, who is uh, another Puritan who is long gone, uh, sums up verses 6 through 11 by saying, that God should love the good, the righteous, the pure, the godly is what we can understand. He's essentially saying it makes sense. But that the infinite holy should love the unholy and give his son for their redemption is the wonder of all wonders. As the love of a mother for her child is not founded on the attractive qualities of that child, but is often strongest when its object is least worthy, so God loves us when we are sinners. God's love for you is not contingent on how good you are because he demonstrated the greatest act of love when you were most detestable, most grotesque, and most unworthy of it. And if God has so greatly demonstrated his love for us in this part of our lives, in the worst parts of our lives, how could his love for us ever change? If God knows our end from our beginning and, and, and knows how the depths of our sinfulness and still loves us, how could it ever change? So here's my question to you. If you're far from God, if you're close to God, my question is why wait? Why wait to take that next step? If you're worried that you won't be accepted if you were to let God in, God knew you're beginning from your end. He knows you so deeply. Are you worried that you're not worthy of all this? That's the point, you're not. That is, that is the beauty of the gospel, is that you're not worthy of it, but it's still extended to you. That invitation is still there. And to the Christian, take hold of hope and peace with God and access to God that God provides in every season of life, but especially take hold of it in your suffering. And maybe you're here and 
you don't know Jesus. You're disenfranchised by organized religion. Your mom, sister, brother, dad, sibling, friend got you here and promised you wex afterwards. To you, I say kudos. But let me be the first to tell you that this life is hard. But it doesn't have to be without hope or peace. God probably won't take you out of the problems in your life, but he will always walk with you through them. And if you want to understand more about what Christianity is about, if you want to understand who true Jesus truly is, I would encourage you to go seek out more about who Jesus is. Talk to one of the pastors. Talk to me. Go, on, like, go, go to the website that we have. Um, but go seek. Take that next step. I have one last quote from you, or for you, and it is uh, by a guy named Dr. Jarvis Williams. He's one of my professors, and he says this, the gospel of Jesus Christ disrupts the normal rhythms of society because it challenges and moves people to embrace Jesus and Jesus alone and embrace his ethics and his standards and being willing to die for Christ and to follow Christ no matter what the cost. You will be challenged, but you will never be alone and you will never be without hope. That is because our hope is found in Christ alone. So you, if you have Christ, you have eternal hope. Let's pray. Dearly Father, Lord, uh, we are just in awe of all these gifts that you have given us, Lord, but we're especially in awe of the greatest gift that you've given us in Christ, that you sent your Son to die on the cross for us, to raise for our justification so that we can have this relationship with you, we can have access to you, we can have peace with you, and we can hope in a better day. And that our hope will never put us to shame. God, we're grateful for all that you do for us. We're grateful for every moment, all the blessings, the big and the small. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us.